I'm Ralph McInerney, a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I've taught since 1955, a long time uh, ago. Uh, and I'm going to give a course, a short course, on the topic faith and reason. Uh, there's been much confusion about what Catholic doctrine is. So many of the younger people who came to that were hearing, perhaps for the first time, really fundamentals, basics uh, of Catholicism. And older, for older people, it was perhaps a little nostalgic uh, to hear what uh, had once been uh, very familiar to them. This course has somewhat the same uh, aim. Uh, we're still at a time when many of us feel a need to have the very fundamental, very basic uh, elements of Catholicism put before us. And in this uh, series of courses, we're very fortunate uh, to have a uh, group of lecturers uh, whose credentials alone and whose uh, uh, place of teaching uh, will assure you uh, that they know what they're talking about, uh, that they're speaking uh, in, a, in an authoritative way because they're not telling you what they think, uh, their opinions, they're telling you what the church's position on certain issues is. What, what issues? Well, I'm going to uh, be talking, as I said, about faith and reason. Uh, Father Kevin Flannery, uh, who is a professor of uh, philosophy at the Gregorian University in Rome, the great Jesuit university uh, there, will be talking on Catholic moral action. And then we have Russ Hittinger, uh, who uh, his name will be familiar to many of you, <coughs> who will be talking about the last several centuries in church history. Uh, Ken Whitehead uh, will be uh, giving a little course on Vatican II. Uh, the second uh, uh, Vatican Council that met in Rome from 1962 to 1965. Uh, Father Mankowski, another Jesuit, uh, who teaches in Rome as well at the Biblicum, uh, will be here to speak on scripture. And Helen Hitchcock, uh, whose name surely will be familiar uh, to you for the work that she's done with uh, Women for Faith and Family, but also as editor, one of the editors of Outer Ramos, uh, the magazine devoted to the liturgy. She will be speaking uh, to you about the liturgy and giving a little course on it, uh, prompted uh, not only by her long experience, but by the recent motu proprio of uh, Benedict XVI uh, uh, that you will know about, which returns to uh, the uh, use of Latin or enables uh, mass to be said in Latin more frequently than has been, uh, been the case. Uh, Ellen Rice, uh, a worthy daughter of her father Charles Wright, will talk uh, to you and give a little course on the catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church. One of the greatest products of the, uh, of the Vatican Council came some 25 years after the council uh, ended. And then a fellow with the odd name of McInerney, Daniel McInerney, uh, will be giving a little course on uh, the nature of the church, uh, basing himself on Lumen Gentium, that conciliar document, uh, uh, the dogmatic constitution on the church of Vatican II, and also on relevant passages in uh, the catechism. The point of these courses is, as I state, to lay out uh, those fundamental uh, elements of uh, the Catholic faith. Uh, it will be possible 
uh, for those who want to take the whole sequence of courses and do uh, meet a number of uh, uh, rather unstrenuous uh, demands uh, to achieve a certification uh, at the end of completing these some eight courses. And uh, the idea is that with that, <coughs> they will be eligible for the many jobs that uh, uh, now exist in parishes and in other uh, church institutions uh, around the country. Uh, with this certificate and with an indication of the kind of, <coughs> of lectures, the kind of course, uh, course presenters that, uh, uh, that you will have had, uh, I think many people will welcome uh, those, uh, those graduates, those uh, certified uh, uh, as, the, as the result of this course. Well, now to begin my topic. I'm going to be relying on uh, a, an encyclical of John Paul II of uh, some 10 years ago now, I guess, uh, called Faith and Reason, Faith and Reason. And in that encyclical, the Pope addresses uh, the time-honored, centuries-old, from the earliest days of the church, uh, attitude that uh, the church has towards human uh, reason. Now, <clears throat> we, of course, are living in the third millennium. And you know, you will know, the opening of Charles Dickens' uh, uh, Tale of Two Cities, uh, very familiar uh, sentence. This is, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And of course, whenever that book has been read since it was uh, written a century and a half ago, uh, people would be able to say, that's the time I'm in now. All times, I suppose, could be said to be the best of times and the worst of times. But sometimes they're better than others, and other times they're worse than others. And we, in the third millennium, are just emerging uh, from a, the bloodiest century uh, in the history of mankind where millions and millions of innocent people were slaughtered uh, in the name of ideologies, pagan ideologies, atheistic ideologies, mainly communism and Nazism. It's a dreadful, dreadful picture. And it, it may be that we're, we're not out of that by a long shot yet, that we're, we're in, in very difficult uh, times. We see the continuing breakdown of the fabric of society. Uh, things that just a short time ago in my lifetime uh, were recognized uh, by almost everyone uh, as uh, perversions uh, have now become uh, the law of the land in many uh, places uh, in the world. Abortion and euthanasia, homosexuality, all the agitation for homosexual marriages and so forth. This would have been unthinkable uh, not very long ago. And, of course, uh, terrorism and the rise of Islam. Uh, none of us can regard that with uh, equanimity. Uh, there is a threat here that has existed throughout the history of Europe and has flared up uh, again and again. And uh, uh, it could very well uh, flare up in a far worse way now because uh, in former times, the Islam was outside of Europe. Now Islam is, of course, scattered through Europe. So if, if, a, if, a, um, if war uh, uh, or violence should break out, it's not going to be easy to determine where the sides of it are. This is, this is a very uh, upsetting uh, thing. And much of it, I, I would uh, contend, I'm not going to develop this now, much of these modern evils, which, as I say, are historic, 
in the sense that you can't match them uh, by appeal to any previous period of history. And it's been in the Orient, it's been in Europe, it's been in uh, Asia, in Russia, and so forth. It's not been confined to one place. But wherever, wherever uh, it has shown up, uh, one can trace it uh, to the abandonment of God, the abandonment of God. And for philosophers, we would take it back, I suppose, to the uh, 17th and 18th century when philosophers began to imagine uh, a society in which men would be totally free because uh, they would have been liberated from religious faith uh, and from uh, uh, the governance of, uh, of princes. Well, we have seen all around us the effects of this effort uh, to build a society without God. Uh, men trying to live together without acknowledging uh, their origin, uh, their creator, and their ultimate uh, destiny. Now, many of the evils of um, uh, modernity, uh, could a philosopher might say, uh, are due to the exaltation of reason. Huh? And since the remedy uh, for the ills of modernity, as these courses will, uh, will uh, display, is Christianity, it might seem that there has to be an opposition between uh, the Christian faith uh, and reason. Uh, what I want to summarize in this uh, kind of introductory lecture uh, is uh, the church's position on that, as I say, relying uh, on uh, John Paul II's encyclical. He uses a metaphor at the beginning of that uh, encyclical that man rises, the human spirit rises on two wings uh, to God. And those two wings are faith on the one hand and reason on the other. Uh, the traditional teaching uh, has been that these are complementary. They're not at war with one another. So the question then arises, why is it that the exaltation of reason, uh, if I'm right, uh, led to these uh, uh, historic disasters uh, over the last century uh, and, um, and more. Uh, clearly, uh, there has to be a way of understanding reason correctly uh, in order for it to be compatible uh, with the, uh, with the uh, faith. Uh, what we're guided by in all this, and I'll develop this uh, in the subsequent lecture, is the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. Uh, in which Paul is speaking to the pagans as pagans, and he's reminding them of their misbehavior. Uh, and then he says, these deeds, and sometimes it looks like a menu of what's going on in our own society, these deeds, uh, St. Paul says, are inexcusable. Yeah, we might think, well, look, he's talking with pagans. Uh, he wants them to become Christians, but they're not yet Christians, so why hold them uh, so blame, uh, much at blame or at fault uh, for doing these things? Don't pagans get a free ticket? And Paul is saying, no, they don't. That these, these deeds are inexcusable. Why? Because the human mind can, from the things that are made, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. He's talking to pagans when he says that. And that's the opening that uh, we have always uh, seen uh, taken or seized upon by the fathers of the church and by uh, doctors and teachers through the Middle Ages down to our own time, John Paul II uh, in his encyclical. The church celebrates uh, the use of reason correctly understood, 
not as if it were something opposed, as if the use of reason necessarily led uh, to the loss of faith and the denial of God. That was the claim of many figures in the Enlightenment. <clears throat> what our own tradition indicates to us is that there is no such uh, necessary entailment uh, at all. Now let's let's go into this thing in terms of the, the what thing the relationship between faith and reason. Let's go into it in terms of uh, one of the difficulties uh, that is has been uh, thrown at religious believers uh, in quite recent times. You know when <clears throat> Job says, "I know that my redeemer liveth." Huh? I know that my redeemer liveth. Uh, well, of course, believers often and easily refer to the things they believe, the truths they hold on the basis of faith, as things they know uh, to be true. And yet at other times we find it important to distinguish between what it's like to know something and what it's like uh, to believe uh, something. Now one of the criticisms uh, that, uh, as I say, recently, in recent uh, times has been leveled against uh, uh, Christian belief uh, it was stated in this maxim, it's immoral, it's immoral uh, to give your assent to any proposition uh, on insufficient evidence. Huh? That sounds reasonable, that sounds reasonable enough. Uh, but it has, as you as you'd agree, I think, the smack of the laboratory about it, as if every proposition uh, is uh, like a scientific hypothesis which must be tested and verified and uh, finally admitted uh, if it passes all these tests. And the suggestion seems to be, it's easy to show how practically ridiculous it would be, uh, that every proposition I hold to be true, I have to rinse through this bath of uh, uh, verification and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, in, in answer to that, uh, one way of kind of shaking things loose uh, is to uh, uh, think of someone asking, if you, know, if you know where you were born, huh? and you say, of course I know where I was born. I was born in Minneapolis. Huh? You go up there and see the bronze plaque. No, I was born in Minneapolis. And he says, how do you know that? Well, my folks told me that. Your folks, huh? How do you know they're telling you the truth? And you say, well, you said, I'll verify it. Huh? So you go up to Minneapolis, go to the courthouse, ask for the record. You ah, baby boy McInerney, February 24th. I knew it. And your skeptical friend is saying, yeah, but who introduced that? Didn't your aunt used to work in the, in the courthouse? I mean, it's, so you, you can see the kind of, of skepticism that could be uh, <coughs> leveled. Uh, even so ordinary a remark as that, uh, that you know where you uh, were born and you know who your parents are. Uh, uh, if that's not a scientific hypothesis that you verified, and it would perhaps turn out to be true that you really couldn't verify it in that uh, fixed, uh, fixed way. Uh, how do I know that Santiago, Chile is down there? Huh? Even if I've seen it, I'm not looking at it now, how do I know that it didn't blow away or it wasn't a mirage or something? How do I know that the next room that I can't see now is there? Uh, how do I know that I can take the word of others? Huh? Uh, you can see if you, if you start getting skeptical about things like this uh, and insist that it is immoral to give your assent to any proposition except on the basis of, of uh, of uh, evidence uh, of an overwhelming kind, 99% at least 
of what we say and act on would be immoral. It would be immoral to act in these propositions. Now, as Cardinal Newman suggested when he was confronted with this in the 19th century, it's not a matter of saying we're going to celebrate being unreasonable 99% of the time and confine reasonable to mean only those cases where we have something like scientific verification. No, what, what Newman suggests is, no, we're going to expand the notion of what reasonable means. Newman put it this way, it's unreasonable to expect that reasonable should always mean exactly the same thing. It's reasonable to take your parents' word uh, for where you were uh, born. It's reasonable uh, to assume that Santiago, Chile is down there. You don't have to go take a look at it before you mail a letter to it. Uh, you wouldn't have to mail the letter. Uh, it's reasonable to do these things. Most of our lives are based on this kind of trust. Uh, St. Augustine said that human life would be impossible uh, without our being able to rely on the word of one, of one another. Sometimes we're deceived, of course. That's, that's part of it. But we can't get around that. And so I'll say, I'll never again uh, take anyone's word for anything that I haven't seen uh, for uh, myself. Now, there is, a, there is a difference between, let's say, this kind of trust human trust are taking, uh, say our uncle Fulvio tells us that Santiago is down there and we figure he's never misled me before, I'll, I'll take his word for it. Well, you could go uh, to Santiago yourself, of course, uh, but would it be the same Santiago that your uncle Fulvio uh, talked about? Uh, scientists, we could say, uh, hold the bulk of what they hold to be true, even in their own small discipline. They hold this on the base, basis of trusting their colleagues. Uh, you can imagine yourself talking with a microbiologist and he's saying, nowadays we know blah, 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 and a whole list of things that we now have achieved knowledge of in microbiology. We? And you ask him, did you run all these experiments? And he said, no. He points to all the journals on his shelf and says, the stuff is in there. That's, where I, that's why I know we know it. But you say, you don't know it. You're just taking the word of the uh, editor or the author of the, well, what the scientists could say, well, I couldn't verify all of those uh, findings, but I could verify any of them. I could verify any of them. So that is, that is a human trust of a kind that is merely an expedient. It can be replaced uh, by, by knowledge. Other instances of, of human belief are permanent. Now, you just can't get around them. Uh, you love your wife, she loves you, you take her word, she takes yours. There's no way of getting around that. You will be faithful to her, that's a promise. It's not, a, it's, 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 it's not just a prediction that something's going to happen you have nothing to do with. It's not a forecast of something that is inevitable, it's something you're going to bring about. That kind of, of um, sharing of trust uh, is at the heart of most of our lives and certainly at the heart of uh, any kind of uh, any kind of society so there are truths that can be accepted on trust and that trust can be replaced by knowledge there are truths that are accepted on trust and that's a fairly permanent thing and then there are the truths of faith huh? The truths of faith, the belief in the trinity of persons in one God, the belief in the incarnate God in Jesus, uh, the belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so these, think of the creed and the articles uh, of the creed. These are things that 
we believe, we hold to be true, we take God's word for it, and as long as we live, that's going to be the only way uh, that we can firmly hold uh, those propositions uh, to be true. Well, that's, that's uh, kind of menu of, of what I uh, will be doing. Now, the structure of these little courses, as I uh, should have pointed out earlier, we first of all give these uh, introductory uh, talks, which are more or less of an overview, a forecast of what is in written lessons, huh? uh, which will be downloadable uh, for those who uh, want to take these courses from our uh, website. Uh, International Catholic University. Uh, <clears throat> those who uh, follow the course, these are uh, uh, basic. Uh, they're easily uh, followed, but they they make demands, and uh, and you wouldn't be uh, uh, taking the time to take the course if it didn't make uh, some demands on you. But they're user friendly. I think you'll find that uh, you can, uh, uh, whatever your background. Uh, you'll be able to catch hold of uh, what we're trying to do uh, in these uh, in these particular courses. Now, the the notion that that the um, church is interested uh, and has been from the beginning uh, in this relationship between what human beings can learn about themselves, about the world, and about God uh, without any help from revelation. Huh? Uh, and on the one hand, and in what, of course, uh, principally the church is interested in, what God has told us about himself. Huh? But the church has always been interested uh, in what human beings can come to know about themselves, the world, uh, and God uh, without the aid of revelation. Huh? And the, the reason uh, for that, well, there, there, there are many reasons, but nowadays uh, I'm, I've often been struck by this in reading John Paul II's uh, encyclical Faith and Reason. You'd think when, when the Pope writes a letter, the main thing he's interested in, and maybe only, the only thing he'd be interested in is defending the faith against, uh, uh, against skeptics or against criticisms made directly of the faith. And you can find church documents that, uh, that look pretty much that way. But in more recent years, something has happened. It's not only the case that we find the faith uh, defended uh, in these uh, ecclesiastical documents, but reason as well, reason as well. Uh, I started with difficulties that uh, believers sometimes face from people who seem to have a great deal of trust in reason. That goes back a way, that example that I use, that it's immoral to uh, accept any proposition except on the basis of overwhelming evidence. That goes back maybe 50 years or so. Nowadays, uh, one of the troubling features of uh, philosophy, my discipline, is that we have a lot of people who have lost faith in the ability of reason to know the world, to know anything for sure about the world. Uh, there are many versions of this, but it's a kind of massive uh, skepticism uh, that permeates the theory of knowledge of, uh, of many people, that anything I say about the world is really a projection uh, from my mind onto who knows what. Huh? But I'm not seeing what's really there. I'm interpreting it. Huh? And that's, that's all we really do. 
and how our interpretations then, which conflict, can be put together uh, is, uh, is an interesting question. But imagine that, that uh, there are people who uh, draw a salary uh, for teaching uh, uh, philosophy and are fairly prestige, have a lot of prestige in the field, and they are in effect saying the human mind is incapable of achieving truth. Huh? Well, the church can't sit still for that. Huh? And one reason is, as we'll be developing in the next uh, half hour, uh, one reason for that is that the faith doesn't, isn't derived from what we can know by reason alone, but it depends on it in ways that I'll, I'll want to develop. If it were really the case that we can't know anything about the world, just to bring it into a focus, how could we understand, say, the parables of Jesus? I mean, he's talking about things in the world uh, and uh, ordinary events, familiar events, as if everyone who is listening to him understands and knows those things. And then on the basis of that knowledge, with grace, they can go beyond uh, that understanding, say, of the parable of the prodigal son, and they see, ah, that is the relation of God to his creatures. That's the point of the parable. But Christ couldn't teach in that way, and we're told that uh, that's the only way he did teach, uh, except to his uh, inner circle. Um, he couldn't do that unless it was possible for the human mind uh, to know the world and themselves and to use that as a springboard uh, for the further truths uh, that Jesus wanted to reveal to them. It's not, of course, surprising that the uh, church would be defending reason uh, as well as uh, faith because it is, it's an indirect way of defending uh, faith itself, as I uh, suggest with that example uh, of the uh, parables. But if we go uh, into uh, our understanding of what a human being is, uh, the nature uh, of uh, man as compared to anything else in this cosmos of ours, man alone is made in the image of his creator. Meaning what? That he has a mind and a will. Uh, he's made to know and love God. That's the point of, uh, of human existence. And that's why it's such a tragedy when reason is abused and used uh, against itself and against that end, against that uh, aim. And that is, uh, that is something that, uh, uh, of course, the church would uh, be uh, interested in, uh, if, uh, if only on its own terms. But, of course, it, it has its uh, impact on how we understand uh, those truths that we accept on the authority of God revealing, and which throughout this life uh, we will accept only uh, on the basis of uh, that trust in God. Uh, Kierkegaard, the great Lutheran theologian, uh, put it this way, that the only difference uh, between the simple man and the wise man with respect to the truths of Christianity is that the simple man doesn't understand them and the wise man understands that he doesn't understand them. Huh? So it's a kind of Socratic uh, ignorance, you might say. Uh, there's a lot that more that, that has to be said and that we will pointing to, be pointing to uh, in the next half hour and in the lessons that uh, accompany uh, these uh, introductory uh, things. Uh, what I would want to stress uh, is the, again, the non-hostility of the faith towards reason or vice versa. 
uh, those two wings that John Paul II talked about uh, are meant uh, to be complementary uh, and, and permit a, a balanced uh, uh, ascension, uh, a balanced, uh, a balanced uh, flight. So we are, we're, we're talking about things which uh, are not in one sense central to the Christian message, uh, but in another sense are extremely important uh, for it. This is one reason why uh, people like myself have spent a long lifetime uh, teaching philosophy in a Catholic university. Uh, the role of philosophy, the role of uh, this pursuit uh, and examination of what we can know uh, for sure uh, using our mind uh, or with degrees of, uh, of uh, certainty, uh, this is a very important uh, complement uh, to those who uh, in my university uh, teach theology. Huh? And we'll be saying something in the next half hour and certainly in the lessons that accompany this uh, introductory uh, lecture, these introductory lectures, we'll be saying a lot more about what we understand by, on the one hand, philosophy and on the other hand, uh, theology. So, faith and reason. Uh, we're gonna look at the uh, uh, text of St. Paul a little more closely and the implications of that text uh, and uh, what has been made of it uh, by uh, the great uh, doctors of, uh, of the Christian faith over, over the centuries and uh, try to uh, express uh, what they have had to say uh, in uh, terms of that will be relevant for the situation in, in, which we, in which we find ourselves. What we want to avoid at all costs is the idea that the faith is some kind of vacation uh, from reason or being reasonable. But it's reasonable in a very different way. Think of Cardinal Newman again. Uh, believing is reasonable. Uh, divine faith is reasonable in a way very different, of course, from the way in which being a microbiologist uh, is being reasonable or trusting your wife is being reasonable. Uh, it's very different from those kinds of reasonableness, and that was Newman's point. We don't want to uh, try to pin that term down to one only use. We're not inventing these other uses, of course. We're just noticing uh, how they, too, occur in ordinary uh, language of, uh, of human beings. We want to pull those out and examine them. And sometimes the use that has been uh, obscured and almost uh, forgotten is the use that is most important most of the time uh, and uh, which uh, guarantees that uh, even uh, people like ourselves can lead a reasonable life, but more importantly, uh, that we have this conviction that uh, our belief in God, our belief in the truths that have been revealed is a reasonable act. Huh? Well, that's, uh, that's about what I wanted to do in this first half hour, uh, introduce the topic of faith and reason, make special reference uh, to the uh, encyclical of that title. Uh, if you take this course uh, from the website, uh, that's one of the texts that you'll be wanting to read, but of course you don't have to take the course in order to uh, read that papal encyclical. Uh, in the written material, I, I tell you how you can find uh, the materials that I refer to on the web and download them uh, uh, at, uh, at no cost. So that's our preliminary presentation of the topic of uh, faith and reason. And uh, next time, uh, I'll be going on to something a little bit more tied down to the scriptural passage in the epistle to the Romans that I've already mentioned.